0: Perhaps some of you know, and perhaps some of you don't, but if you do, you're welcome to howl at the end. Now this is the law of the jungle, as old and as true as the sky, for the wolf who keeps it will prosper, and the wolf who doesn't shall die. As the creeper that girdles the tree trunk, the law runneth forward and back. The strength of the pack is the wolf, and the strength of the wolf is the pack. Oh, good. All right, we got some wolves out there. This is from Ruyard Kipling's The Jungle Book, As Mowgli Learns the laws of his parents, of his adoptive parents, the wolves, what he's learning is that there's basically one fundamental underlying premise that drives everything the wolves do. Different from the monkeys, different from the lion, different from the tiger, different from the bear, there is something that drives the wolves. Well, so too, I think with any organization or with Uh, Any religion. Basically, at some point, it all boils down to one thing. There's one fundamental underlying premise that drives everything else you do. This, in Christianity, is the great commandment. Now, really, all the great commandment is, is the great Shema sort of repeated or restated a second time. So today in our sermon, what I'm going to do is sort of look at what drives this thing we call Christianity. It's part of the bigger series of Engage, which is engage with God, engage with family, and engage with stewardship. Last week we saw that God's love for us was la pasione that drove us. This week we will see that the singularity of God is sort of the law of the jungle if you will so let me set that up in context for you and then we'll walk through it and hopefully by the end of the day i think you'll be looking at this text uh, quite a bit differently than perhaps you have before what happens is this is in mark chapter 11 uh, jesus is going throughout the uh, city and he's teaching in the temple area, or what the Jews called the synagogue at that time, and there's a lot of commotion. There's a tremendous stir. Now, when there's a big stir, it gets people's attention, and particularly those people who don't want there to be much of a stir, those people who are very happy with the status quo and comfortable uh, being the boss of nearly everything. Those are the bigwigs, or in this case, the chief priests and the scribes. So, you see in Mark 11, this, this text that we're going to be at today is in Mark 12, but I want to show you what's going into this. In Mark chapter 11, it says, it sets the scene like this. It says, as Jesus was walking through the temple area, this is where you're going to run into all the um, rulers, the bigwigs, if you will. He runs into the leading priest, that's the chief priest, some Bibles call them, the teachers of the religious law, also known as the scribes and the elders. So basically all the experts, the authorities, the bosses, the people who run the place are now like, hey, who's this guy? What's he doing? Why is he here? As they begin to listen in to what Jesus is saying, what they realize is that basically there are tremendous differences between what they are teaching and between what he is teaching and they're not so sure that, not only, not only do they realize they're not on the same page, they're not so sure that they really appreciate this guy. In fact, they, being the ones who make the rules, are now listening to some up-and-coming son of a carpenter from the podunk town of northern Nazareth. So they're looking at this guy sort of scratching their heads, and they're wondering, hey, number one, who authorized you? Number two, what makes you think that after all these years of our teaching and our expertise, you can walk in one day and all of a sudden change everything, flip it on its head, who gave you the right? Who, who are you to set yourself above our law, our tradition, our culture, our people, our religion, and our way? What's up with you? And worse than that, huge numbers of people are flocking to Jesus. So there's power issues, there's control issues, there's political issues, and there's pride issues going into it as well. They're wondering, hey, we used to be the stuff, now we're not. What's up? And so what they decide to do is go to this new and upcoming uh, superstar, if you will, and they're going to set a few traps. They're going to allow him to fall on his face, to embarrass himself in front of everyone else, and that should take care of the problem. You've probably heard it said, especially in family gatherings, never talk about politics and religion. Exactly right. Just don't go there. Keep it nice and sweet and surface and sports and the latest restaurant you ate at and all that other stuff that nobody can argue about, but don't go there. Well, guess what? These guys are just about to go there. In chapter 11, they're going to ask Jesus three trick questions. One is on authority. That is, where do you get your power? The second is on politics. Who should we pay taxes to? Taxes are always a political issue, right? And then finally, religion. Um, There's this divisive debate that has created a schism even within Judaism about the resurrection and the afterlife and what is true and what is not. And if this happens, then this, and if this happens, then that. And so, what do you think, Jesus? Hmm? And those will be the questions. All throughout chapter 11, in the beginning of chapter 12, these guys are grilling him with the most difficult, complex, tricky, easy to step in, and easy to mess up questions they can think of. Because they're just hoping that they just know eventually this guy's going to blow it. On one of these questions, He's going to say something that's going to send somebody's you know, head through the roof, and it's on from then on out. But what actually happens, if you follow the storyline, is something quite amazing. In fact, what Jesus does, is much like a kung fu expert will do, is he takes their momentum coming into them, coming into him, and all of a sudden flips it around and turns it on them. Or in fencing, if you will, when someone attacks, he defends, and all of a sudden turns it back around as well. And it's a beautiful display of theological skill and dialectical uh, skill or debating skill and acumen. And what happens then is as this group is mobbing Jesus, there is an individual on the sidelines who's somewhat paying attention. And he's watching this go down. He knows what they're doing. He's seen it before. This is the regular practice. And yet, he's watching this one guy sort of fend them all off. And he's thinking, wow, this is like Bruce Lee of the debate world. This guy is amazing. He's throwing people left and right. And all of a sudden, his esteem and his understanding and appreciation for this teacher is starting to grow, and he begins to wonder within himself, okay, he's handled the three most tricky questions we can think of with ease. There's actually a question that I have. There's one that I've been wrestling with, with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind, for all of my life. And it's this thing about God, because I'm this Old Testament Jew, and I'm trying to figure out how to follow Him, but everything I have tells me it's really tricky. I mean, I have the law, right? And the law is what? We have a slide that shows you there's 613 commandments in the Old Testament. 248 are negative, sorry, 248 are positive, 365 are negative. So what do I do? Well, I suppose if I want, I can chart it out and set up a negative command for every day of the year and then do something with the positive or whatever, and maybe by the end of the year I've... But on day one, I'm forgetting the law that's on day two or day three, and I, I just can't do it. How in the world? It's too complex. It's too big. It's too everything. I just can't remember it. I can't process it. There's nothing I can do with this. I cannot make heads or tails of this thing. Somebody's going to have to help. And I'm trying and I'm doing all the stuff, but that is not enough. So teacher, rabbi, dude, whoever you are, what would you say to this? If you were to look at the complexity that's been handed down to me, and you genuinely wanted to follow God, how would you, in one sweeping statement, what is the fundamental underlying premise of everything that we're supposed to do and everything that we're supposed to be? Rabbi, what is it? Of all 613, which is the greatest commandment? Jesus' answer... To Mark chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn there. And we'll look at Jesus' answer to one of the trickiest questions of all. Mark chapter 12, beginning verse 28, says this. One of the scribes, just one, not the whole group, but an individual, came up to them and heard them disputing or arguing or debating amongst each other. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, well, which commandment is the most important of all? And this time, Jesus didn't question, he didn't debate, he didn't tell an allegory or a story, but instead he answered this guy. A genuine question gets a genuine answer. And Jesus answered, the most important is this. Love? Oh wait, no there's something before that the most important is this here O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one Oh, and by the way therefore consequently subsequently because he is one you shall then love the Lord your God with all of your heart with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And the second is this, you should love your neighbor as yourself, for there's no other commandment greater than these. The scribe, blown away, said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than the whole of all the burnt most sacred offerings and even the sacrifices put together when jesus saw that he answered wisely jesus said to him you are not far from the kingdom of god after that nobody dared ask any questions (laughs) you know how that is right you get to that spot no one asks any more questions why Well, Jesus answers, and he answers well, and even the scribe admits that. Most of the times you hear the scribes and the Pharisees and leaders asking Jesus questions. They're not ready to admit that you're right, we're wrong. (laughs) This guy is. He's different. There's something about him that says, you know what, teacher? I'm willing to give you that. That was pretty impressive. The theme for today is this. Um, I think you're perhaps assuming because your familiarity with this text, that it's to love God. But I think the theme of this section is actually this. Monotheism requires singular devotion. Monotheism, the fact that there is only one God, requires exclusive or singular love or devotion towards that deity. Well, Pastor Jeremy, I, I thought this was on the first great, great commandment, and the first great commandment is to love, right? Well, here, O Israel, hear, O Midland Free. The first great commandment is this, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. Now, why is that significant? Just because I love my little theological hobby horse? Absolutely not. Think about it. If there is more than one God, then what gives this God the right or the power or the authority to write the law See, he begins by writing the law but what that assumes is that he is the authority to do so he doesn't call a committee together and take a vote and get the best ideas and compile them and redact them and reduce them down to whatever no he just says this is it this is who i am and the law flows out of me and therefore it has authority because i have authority i'm the only one there is If there's multiple gods, we have multiple different rule sets and multiple different codes depending on which god is in power at which place and which time. But because there is only one god, then there's only one law. And if there's only one god, then we are accountable to that god. If there's multiple gods, we're not accountable to that god unless we're on his turf. But because it's all his and it's all his turf, we can't get away from it in any way whatsoever, we are accountable to Him. So it's His law, we're accountable to Him, and then as we look at it honestly and actually evaluate ourselves, we say, whoa! We're all guilty. Not only is there one law and there's one God and we're all accountable, but we're also all guilty. Well, that's a problem. Well, what then? Well, there happens to be one person, only one, who has ever perfectly kept the law. His name is Jesus. And if he's the only one, then he happens to be the only way. We don't have any other chance. So there's one God, one law. We've all broken it. We're all guilty. There's only one person who hasn't. I guess that person who hasn't then must be the only one who can help us. And as it turns out, that only one who helps us fulfills the law by dying on the cross, becoming the ultimate sacrifice, shedding his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And as a result, that is necessary. Jesus had to die. If Jesus didn't die, we're still in our sins. And that means that because of this sequence of events, that Jesus is the only way. And that's where it begins to get really, really significant. Look, I'm sitting up here comfortably in the United States of America in a conservative area called Midland, Michigan, saying Jesus is the only way. And none of you are like, man, big deal. Whoa! (laughs) Can you imagine if I said that in Iran? Can you imagine if I said that in Pakistan? Can you imagine if I said that anywhere else other than here? I would be laughed off the stage. You guys are sitting there very comfortably, as am I, and I can declare in a very, very safe way that Jesus is the only way. But that is not the case around the world. That's not the case in Jesus' day. If you look at the Roman culture, what was it? Well, originally it was Roman, and before that Greek, and before that Babylonian, and before that Assyrian, they weren't monotheists. They were polytheists. They had a God for nearly anything. So, for example, if you want to win... And you're Roman, who's your god? Probably many of you are wearing them on your feet right now. Nike, exactly right, the Greek god of victory. Well, maybe you don't want to win. Maybe you're just a little bit thirsty. I think you could call on Bacchus, the god of wine. Perhaps you're interested in a new romance. Let's speak with Cupid or Venus. Or you're interested in a great big buck. You should talk to Diana, the goddess of the hunt. Maybe you're feeling a little bit weak today and you want to feel a bit stronger, speak with Hercules, the goddess of, the god of strength. No matter the case, no matter the situation, there is a god for you under this polytheistic culture, but to stand in the midst of them and say, all of your favorite heroes and all of your favorite pagan deities and whoever you're going to, every single one of them is wrong. <laughs> How do you think that's going to go over? Imagine the Super Bowl party and you have family members there, perhaps they're other religions or other whatever, and you just stand up and say, hey everybody, (laughs) you're all wrong. Only Jesus. How is that gonna fly? About like it flies here. That's why Jesus starts off with this very essential, fundamental, underlying premise before this whole love and your God stuff. If you don't know which one is which, don't bother. You're loving the wrong one. There is only one God. And this is the premise that drives an entire biblical worldview, whether you're Old Testament Jew, New Testament Christian, whether you believe. I mean, this is the thing itself, that there is only one God. Now, You may be looking at me and saying, well, great, Pastor Jeremy. I've had that since my three-year-old Sunday school class. But the reality is... Even though you may have that cognitively, that's entirely different from having it uh, intrinsically or in your heart. Why? Because we act like there's multiple gods all the time. Some days we want to serve Him, some days we don't. Some days we feel accountable, other days we don't. Some days we try to manipulate Him, just like the other deities. And we think, well, if I do this, then He'll give me this. And if I do that, then He'll give me that. But the reality is, if there is only one God, then it's not that we align ourselves with him so that it's not that we align him with us so that he can give us things but instead we align ourselves with him so that we can give him what he wants if it's aligning him with us then that's making us the God and that is not the case so we begin this chapter challenging Our very fundamental cultural assumptions, we may not have pagan deities all over the place, but we have boats, we have lake houses, we have entertainment, we have sports, we have this, we have that, we have all kinds of priorities that come way above Jesus, and not just the expensive ones, even the cheap ones, that all get in the way of making our exclusive singular devotion fully for Him. And this text starts off with the bottom line, fundamental, underlying premise that nothing Anywhere, in any way whatsoever, is more important than God. Here, listen, don't miss this part, church. Don't jump to the lovey-dovey because that's the Cupid stuff and you haven't got there yet. Your heart is still split and torn. You must in every way believe, Mark 12:28 and 29 and 30, that the Lord, the Lord your God is one. This is where it starts. Monotheism, in other words, here's the theme. Let me say it again for you. Monotheism requires, I think there's a slide, monotheism requires singular devotion. That's the deal. Because you believe in one God, this is what drives this whole thing. Because there's one God, you cannot split your allegiance. It's extremely, extremely exclusive. Now think about that. I'm making a big deal of it religiously, but you actually believe this. Whether you realize it or not, you believe this. Even in our culture, if you have a romantic interest, husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, you want them to be exclusively devoted to you. Even if you're not exclusively devoted to them, you still desire them to be exclusively devoted to you. Well, say you're a man, and I'll just address the elephant in the room, and you think, well, I could handle a lot of ladies, you know, whatever. Well, how did that go for David? Right? King David, he was king, it was culturally acceptable, he could do whatever he wanted, so any woman he thought was pretty, he just took. And as long as he made her his wife, no one asked any questions. And he builds this huge harem, How's that go for him? Well, his children raped and killed each other. One of them tried to kick him off the throne and kill him. Everybody fought in his house the rest of their lives, not so great. <laughs> There's something within the heart of human beings that recognizes the value of exclusivity. And real love, genuine love, is exclusive love. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve, God, in and of himself, the one God. Exclusivity is fundamentally wired into our soul. It's what we desire, it's what we like, and it's what works. God demands it, and he requires it. And any time we start to spread ourselves out among anything else, we fail. Hear, O Israel, hear, O church, the Lord, your Lord, is one. Listen to the New Testament, restate that in a variety of ways. It says it like this. Look, there's one God. This is crazy to say, you understand, there are billions of people that are going to hell because of this. If there was another God, there is another way. But this text is making a very damning claim. There is only one God, and there is only one mediator between God and men, and that man is Jesus Christ by no other name. Jesus specifically says of himself, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father, John 14, 6, through me. Then in John chapter 3, verse 16, The verse we all quote as lovey-dovey. Look what it says. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But what does Jesus say? Whoever does not believe is condemned. On Jesus' very lips, it's black and white, night and day. You believe, you're saved. You don't believe, you're condemned. Why? Because He's not believed in the name of the only one. Fundamental. Underlying premise, Son of God. There is only one. Isaiah spells it out just like this I am the Lord, and there is no other. Monotheism requires singular devotion for the Lord. The Lord our God is one. What am I saying to you today, church? Listen, I think I'm trying to say it like this. You ready? This is the law of eternity, older and truer than the sky. The person who believes it will prosper, but the person who doesn't will die. As the creeper that girdles the tree trunk, the law runneth forward and back. Jesus is God's only answer, and he is the only way back. There is only one God. Therefore, you must, you have to, you have no choice. There is no alternate solution but to love him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. Now, there's a lot of ways you could love him, and I suppose we could talk about uh, all sorts of customized individual plans for adoring God. I want to give you two specific ways this morning, just so you can think about these things. Here's your action steps for this week. Number one is just to share Him with others. I remember when my kids were even smaller than they were now, now it's kind of faded out a little, but when they were little, 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 if they tried something that was yummy, if it was a tomato, if it was gooey peas, if it was candy or popcorn or ice cream or whatever they would take a bite and get all over their face and nose and hands and they'd say mm, good try some you know I'm like, mm, gooey slobber Yum. give me some of that and you eat it why for their joy and for their pleasure because you love them and because they love you they want to share this thing which they have found to be good with you try this dad it's so wonderful you've got to experience it I can't keep it all to myself. It's too good. Try it. <laughs> but then what happens? They grow older, and I don't know if they're just disinterested, or selfish, or maybe even self-aware. And they start worrying more about themselves than about others, and they don't look out to share quite as much. And all of a sudden, they don't give that stuff away. And they're eating their thing, and you look at it and you think that's pretty good. And can I have some of that? And it. Hey, what happened? <laughs> you won't share with your dad but we're just like that aren't we look at a new christian anytime you meet one it's always the same thing they're like whoa jesus they're like what's going on in your life i don't know but jesus <laughs> try it it's great it's so awesome and they're all gooey and slobbery and you're just kind of like oh, what's happening to you don't you know like there's appropriate times to talk about him and not so appropriate times to talk about him it's like that. Super Bowl, and we don't really want to get into that. Stay out of politics and religion. Don't go there. Keep it nice and surface. You silly, 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 immature little Christian. If you were only smarter and wiser and older like me, you'd know don't talk about Jesus at the Super Bowl. (laughs) Come on, you got to watch whoever have a wardrobe malfunction. Isn't that better? By no means. They're right. We're wrong. They embarrass us. How do you love him share go back to that childlike faith that brand new thing where it's super exciting and you're fully devoted and exclusive all for one you're just like jesus that's good doesn't mean you have all the answers or understand the rule book but you got this one right if you want to understand it this is the way jesus that is the originator that is the beginning That is the end, the Alpha, the Omega, the Almighty, all powerful, all knowing Son of the Living God says, This is it. I think you can go there. You don't need much more. Mark chapter 12. Jesus. There is only one, and there is no other. Share. Share. Just like the little kid, be excited, like the scribe who is honest. How does he come? Well, I have all the answers. Let me just check my rule book here. Hold on. Yeah, I can Google that. No. All the other guys want to ask the complicated questions and get in a debate and sort of argue and intellectualize and keep it, you know, out here. Don't let it get in here. But this scribe's like, you know what? I don't know. Jesus, you tell me. You tell me. How's that for a different posture? (laughs) Most of the time we want to tell him, right? God, that ain't fair. It ain't right. Don't you know who should rule this universe instead of you? Maybe it should be me. (laughs) I should be sitting on the throne. I'll tell you what I'd do to them if I were. Oh, boy, God, if you could get it right, then we'd be in sync. What? What are you talking about? Why don't you ask the question instead of stating the command? He states the command. We ask the question. He demands we follow. He rules we submit. He gets glory, we bend the knee. He must increase, we must decrease. That's the way it works. Be like the scribe. Come ready to worship. Come on Sunday morning with your hearts prepared, having studied all week, not to intellectualize and debate and argue and keep it up here, but to drop your knee and bend your heart and have God infuse and invigorate and empower you. Teacher, you tell me. What do you want me to do? I'm not coming here with all the answers. I just got questions. God, you show me. That's the way you love. Love is not standing up here and ruling over everybody and trying to be the boss and setting the rules. But love is being like the little baby who says, I'm so excited, I don't know, it's just Jesus. Love is being like the young scribe who says, I've tried, I can't figure it out, you tell me. This is love. Share God in a gentle and compassionate way. and Ask Him to lead you. Don't try to lead Him. Let Him lead you. Hear, O Israel. Hear, church. There's only one. Don't mess around with any of this other stuff or anything else. There is only one God. You shall love Him with all of your heart, with all of your soul. In all of your mind. Father, we thank you and praise you that you're it. What fools, or what a fool I am to think there is anything else. Lord, how obstinate we become when we even try. God, as we take communion today, as we sing songs, we talk about I surrender all in the name of Jesus, we pray that we'd actually realize that. It's so hard My heart is drawn towards all these other things and they're silly and short-lived and they simply don't last. I just pray, God, that um, somehow, as a result of today, that you would change me and you would change us. So we would love you exclusively and wholeheartedly forever and ever. For you are all there is. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.